Hi, this is Cameron Noller, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. So, my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Cameron Noller, who is a young guitarist, not, I think, probably fair to say, not strictly a bluegrass guitarist, but somebody I know through bluegrass circles. Um, I interviewed Bob Minna fairly recently on the podcast, and Bob said to me at the end of that interview, you should check out Cameron Nola. Um, so I did. I, I went to see Cameron play um, in London fairly recently, and we'll talk about that in a while. But Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's cool to have you here. Um, I think it'd be really interesting, uh, just because I'm interested, really, just to find out a bit about sort of how you got into music and guitar, what sort of point in your life it started, what your journey's been like. Was, was guitar your first instrument, for example? That's um, something I think about quite often because I feel like in bluegrass, folk, old time, I feel like a lot of people grew up with it or if they didn't grow up with it, they had some young, very young formative experience. And I suppose when I found the music, I was relatively young. I found bluegrass when I was 15, but that's not where I started. I started playing like electric guitar when I was nine. Um, and, uh, one of there's, pictures of me maybe at two years old, three years old, holding a guitar, but it wasn't until I was maybe eight or nine that I really got a proper one where I could, um, you know, really try my hand at it. But I think um, what attracted to me uh, to the guitar was originally like Guns N' Roses, uh, full disclosure. So, um, hmm. and and I think being a, a young kid, um, de- dexterity was something that, kind of came easy so it was something to kind of um it was almost like a latent pastime but it wasn't until i discovered bluegrass at 15 um just hearing a string band play fiddle tunes that i really kind of was granted this i almost want to say like singular focus because it was very clear to me that that's what i wanted to do and i never really had that love for music on that level until until that moment so it, it was a bit of a kind of a circuitous route in that way looking back but it was first electric guitar took drum lessons at the same time put it down for quite a few years and then really dove in whenever acoustic music was introduced to me and when did that what was the cause of that at 15 was do you remember where you where you were when you heard it or what what band it was or yeah it's um so whenever uh I was younger. Um, my grandparents would, you know, take me on, on a vacation, like every few years, basically. Um, and I, and I wanted to see the American West proper. So I grew up in Arizona, but I wanted to see Wyoming. And, um, so, so we, there was a a bus tour, um, that took us through a number of states like Montana, Utah, Wyoming. And in Wyoming, there was two options for, for evening plans. There was like a little flyer that said, um, like a, like a high school rodeo. And the other was like a bluegrass music showcase. I, I don't think I really, maybe I'd heard the term bluegrass before, but I didn't really know what that meant. And like I said, I was 15. So I just chose that kind of on a whim. And, um, there's a guy named Don Miller in Cody, Wyoming, who I believe bought out a historic theater in downtown Cody and he and his daughter, and I believe his wife and maybe a family friend, at least at the time, had a bluegrass band that they would entertain um, 
that they would, you know, perform to entertain tourists. And um, they played whiskey before breakfast and announced it that way. And then whenever I got back home um, to Texas, where I was living at the time, I went on YouTube, <laughs> typed in whiskey before breakfast. And the first thing that came up was um, a video of Norman Blake playing it on um, a homespun DVD. And from there, there was a related video of Johnny Cash and Mother Maybell playing Wildwood Flower. So those were my two three, I guess three introduct introductory moments, um, or two introductory moments post my first one in, in Wyoming. Um, so yeah, it was just totally on a whim and I had a lot of get electric guitars at the time, maybe four sold them all, got a D 18 and then really kind of did my best to get to work. Were those your sort of early influences, Norman Blake and, and Mabel Carter was that sort of the kind of sound that grabbed you or was that just the first thing you heard? It was the, you know, both, but, but mainly at the time it was just what I first heard, but it's very odd in that way because everything that I really investigated with any real depth past that point always pointed back to those two sources, which is a kind of a mysterious thing to me still to this day, because it wasn't conscious at all. And I didn't really know how they fit into you know, shall we say the pantheon of that music? I, I didn't realize that they had shared sensibilities, that they knew each other, that Norman worked with Johnny and all these sorts of things. So it was sheer coincidence. But then later, um, you know, and still to this day, going back, that is really the stuff that grabs me most. And, it, and it's interesting because we sort of, we talk about, particularly on this podcast, because it's called Bluegrass Jam Along, and we talk largely from a bluegrass perspective about stuff. But, like, you know, names like Norman Blake come up, and Norman Blake isn't really what you would define as bluegrass, and neither is the Carter family. They're a big part of, you know, how that world has grown and how people think of it. But, um, like, bluegrass can encompass quite a lot of things to some people. And it, it's sort of interesting. We'll come on to a really interesting book that you've written about, about guitar styles. But... That that sort of conversation about bluegrass guitar, it's easy to think that bluegrass guitar sort of started with Doc Watson and then sort of Tony Rice and there's so much rich history to it. And the more people I talk to, the more kind of people reference back to some of the stuff that came before that and where the, where the roots of it came from and it didn't. Blue, bluegrass guitar is, is still a relatively new thing in many ways. Um, certainly flat pick lead guitar in that sense. Um, right. and, and particularly, you know, Norman Blake of all the major names that are spoken about these days is maybe the one who has the biggest, biggest grounding in some of that previous history of, of the guitar in those settings. Yeah, certainly. I think, um, uh, the great, um, uh, multi-instrumentalist and songwriter, um, Jody Stecker has a really great saying about flat picking that. Flat picking is a style, not a genre. Um, mm. And I think that that's kind of an interesting, um, I, I think it's an, a, a brilliant way of framing it because I think that um, it gets a little bit soupy, but basically the idea of a f playing melodies with a flat pick 
isn't necessarily flat pick guitar. It's idiomatic too. So there is a component that that's, you know, highly stylized to bluegrass music. Um, and I, you know, there's a lot of interesting discussion about, you know, there's kind of a, almost like a black and white discussion in terms of in old time music, the guitar plays a rhythmic role and in bluegrass music, it plays a strong rhythmic role as, I mean, there's a lot of practitioners, you know, Lester Flat. Del McCurry, Jimmy Martin, you know, Tony Rice, Wyatt Wright. I mean, there's a history of talking about bluegrass rhythm guitar, um, but there's also this component to um, delivering virtuosity through that, which is kind of very much at odds with old time music. But um, I, I always thought that was just kind of an interesting way of dealing with it. Um, kind of coming up in, in bluegrass and doing like competition flat picking stuff, but then also finding myself in old time jams and just hearing rhetoric about, you know, how, um, you know, if you play too many runs in an old time jam or you're too busy, it can be too bluegrass E, but if you're playing in a bluegrass circle and you're playing too many bass runs, it could be too old time centric. Um, so, but yeah, I think, you know, if we, if we really look back, um, and as you mentioned, the, the book project, the, the method book that I put out is trying to see them in increasingly more unified ways and, and investigating ways that we can, um, flat pick in ways that carry forward tradition. And I think really the big distinguishing point there is that, um, Old time music is really facilitates dance and bluegrass kind of became this almost like what Robert Schumann did, you know, like kind of like art music. And, and it, it's this spectacle that, you know, borrows from, you know, classical music and jazz, you know, through dog music and, and all these great collaborations that happen more con contemporarily. Um, but, uh, but I think it's interesting to really go back to the stuff from the twenties and early thirties and, uh, and those roles aren't so scripted. I, I like to argue. Yeah. And I, so this sort of feels like a good time to talk about the book. You've written a method book called guitars have feelings too, which is a great title. Um, Thanks. And, I, and I love that it's, it sort of explores this idea of, of bluegrass has taken certain elements of old time and sort of created something new. And and it feels like what you're the sort of the main, I don't, I'm not, I'd be interested to hear sort of what brought you to write the book, but the main thrust about it is to celebrate what bluegrass guitar has become whilst also looking back to kind of where it came from, because sometimes it feels to you that, that bluegrass has, has lost touch with its, with its roots in a way that could be meaningful to, to sort of reacquaint it with in a way. Right. I, I think I, I appreciate you saying it that way. I definitely do mean to celebrate where where bluegrass is and where it, and and also where it comes from and i think it's this um there's um there's a touch of irony to to the conversation because it's such a you know to people outside of those worlds they ask like why does it really matter you know and 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 for me the answer to that question is basically just um 
being a good steward of, of the music. Um, and for me, being a good steward is just investigating sources and what those sources were, where, who was geographically close to so-and-so, um, those sorts of things. I, I realized that being academic is, um, kind of at odds with the nature of the music is so much of it is just, a you know, um, an oral tradition and people largely learn by ear. Um, but, but I guess there was one fundamental question that I really just asked was, you know, guitar players play fiddle tunes. We play Blackberry Blossom and Bill Cheatham and, um, all these great tunes that have these very eternal or I should say more eternal sources. And, and I just thought it was, I still think it's funny that guitar players learn fiddle tunes from other guitar players, as opposed to learning from fiddlers. Mm. And then I started thinking about, well, how many flat pickers play fiddle because fiddles don't have frets. Um, they use alternate tunings. Banjos use alternate tunings. Um, is it more traditional? I mean, is it, like, is it truly unorthodox to play fiddle tunes and open tunings on the guitar? Um, those sorts of things. Um, but also, yeah, talking about rhythm and lead playing as, and I, and I borrowed this really from jazz pedagogy because the idea of to comp, um, like to accompany or to complement a soloist the way that it's taught, at least the way that I learned it in conservatory is very much closer to soloing, like to learn, you know, a, a Bach, um, study or a Charlie, uh, Charlie Parker, um, jazz head. You can see the harmony outlined in single notes. And, um, I wanted to kind of tuck that into the conversation as well. So, the book starts by discussing kind of the bedrock elements of rhythm and then showing how melodies come out of those rhythms um, or how, you know, how we can listen to fiddle tunes structurally in terms of eight measure phrases, same thing relates to, to soloing. So at the beginning of the book starts with kind of beginner backup guitar exercises. And then by the end it introduces flat picking um, and that's sort of one of the yeah. things that I think, um, being relatively new to all of this is that the idea that I, I had in my head, a definite sense that the rhythm was the rhythm and the melody was the melody. And, and then you listen to a great bluegrass, um, guitar player play backup and it's as much of an improvisation as hearing them take a break. And it's as much of a reaction to what's going on. And it's as much of a commentary on what's going on to the point where, you can take that almost to the point where you hear Chris Eldridge and Julian Large play whiskey before breakfast, and it's hard to know who's playing the tune, and if they're both right. just and they're they're accompanying with single notes, and you know that's not traditionally blue, but there's but there's so much room in all of it for for improvisation. There's not kind of one solo, and then everybody else is filling a role, and that's it. Right. No, I think that's that's beautifully said, and that's a great example of that recording. Um, and just how they perform it live when they do perform. Um, that's, I think, you know, it can kind of go, you can see it kind of as 
a jazz oriented improvisation too, in terms of um, rhythm playing a more active role than not. Um, too, I hear this a lot with, with people like, like Brian Sutton, a lot of his runs will be harmonically oriented around the melodies. He's, he's truly aware of what the melody's doing. And that's something, an ethic that I wanted to propagate in the book is, well, what's happening in the melody? Like, where do fiddle tunes land? You know, what, what does a major third sound like? You know, and if you can hear that as a backup player, you can, you can choose to, you know, oppose that or agree with that. And I, and I think um, a good way of doing that is just being able to um, hear fiddle melodies for their structural components. But then on top of that, being able to have the skill set, which is an entirely different skill set, um, where I think when people get, let's say, a guitar person who's very guitar centric, if they hear a guitar player on recording, they can maybe play back exactly what they played from the recording. I don't know if that is necessarily awareness of the tune or just being able to like being like, um, I guess how I mean to say it is being tamborally aware of the guitar. Like first fret B string is C. Do you know that that's C or do you just know that you, you can just, you know, empathize being a guitar player. So, um, I think being able to hear fiddle melodies, and being able to do the same thing from the fiddle or other instruments is, is important too. And it can lend to that, um, that interaction um, that you're speaking about. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the guitar is it's possible to be like a really interesting, exciting, creative guitar player and not know all the notes you're playing because you can play out of shapes and you can play out of positions. And, and like, like compared to being a piano player or a woodwind player where there is only one place those notes exist, right? like you, you need to know what the notes are. Um, to be able to yes. play them, whereas as a um, like playing fretted instruments in general, it is possible to get away with not knowing your way around the instruments and know where all the notes are. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting mind, and that that whole mindset makes playing those instruments different. Totally, I think I was thinking about this recently. Um, you know, if you're playing piano and you play a D major scale, no matter which octave you're in. It's just, that's what D major looks like. That's the shape. Um, with, as you're saying, guitar, let's just say you're playing, you're using the cage method or, or some other system of these interlocking shapes. Um, certain moves that one may do in one position may be logistically convenient. So in that way, the guitar... Um, as a, as kind of psychologically, uh, guitar players have this, uh, um, it's kind of this, this language that's bred into the guitar that I think is largely responsible for, you know, um, such a rich community of so many different guitar players, because even across genres, there's this, um, camaraderie in that. Um, and so, I think it's a really good point. And I think it, it makes it exciting too, for voicing fiddle tunes too, because you don't have to necessarily play it in the same position or, you know, a lot of fiddle tunes are played out of first position. Um, 
players like Grant Gordy, for example, are people who blend positions, who used use what he calls floaties, where he can use closed strings up against open strings to get, you know, these harp-like effects that right. um, you can go to open tunings, all these sorts of things. You can't necessarily take a piano and put it in open G minor uh, without spending two weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and just that whole sense of just talking about accompaniments, um, that whole sense. So I, I interviewed a guy called Tim Brooks a while ago, and he's written a book about the acoustic guitar and its place in American culture. And a point that he made that I hadn't considered, and um, he, he sort of suggested that part of the evolution of old-time music, when guitar sort of arrived on the scene, because old-time music was largely fiddle and banjo-driven originally, guitar arrived, people weren't too sure about it because it kind of imposed a chordal structure on melodies that could previously be quite ambiguous. And so there is that right. interesting sort of look at what the chords actually are because you can reharmonize to your heart's content there's so many different ways of harmonizing a tune but there have become sort of standard ways of doing it that perhaps didn't exist when those tunes were played 100 years ago that's a great point um yeah that's that's something really i've i became aware of there's a great record by a uk label in the 70s of the old time fiddler Emmett Lundy. And there's um, a pamphlet written by an old time musician uh, named Tom Carter, who talks about the influence of the guitar um, and how much it changed um, st not only stylistically the music, but as you're mentioning the chordal options. And that's something I, I think a lot about with listening to 78 records and trying to transcribe from them their low fidelity makes exact transcript especially with the fiddle where there are no exact frets right in addition to the scratchiness of those old records being transferred digitally by the time someone like myself tries to put it on the guitar or the mandolin or the banjo or something um exact transcription it just simply isn't possible and, and exact transcription within this music isn't possible because so much, so many decisions are microtonal coming from the fiddle. But I guess an important point I, that I try to keep in mind is that um, a lot of these things kind of evade musical politics, like the, even just chords, there's always, you know, even by region, you know, Texas may use Texas backup players may use a major six, you know, as opposed to a minor six, some people have a really strict complex about there being no minor chords in old time. Um, so I think the guitar really is this political battlefield, shall we say. And, and that's why I, I went with kind of a, an ironic title. Um, not, not necessarily ironic. Um, it, but it's, it's really supposed to point out that, um, the fact that, the guitar is so influential and just by the ability to make so many creative decisions, like you, mm. like you mentioned. Yeah. It does, sort of how you choose to accompany something does in a way pin it down to being something that, you know, and it's, and every choice you make is, is sort of a little, little, almost like a little thumbtack, just putting a melody in place and you can make a different right. choice second time round. You can, you know, you can right. reharmonize the A part before you get to the B part. Um, you, you know, exactly. It, 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 and that's and that's one of the things with 
I guess, reactively accompanying somebody is listening to the choices they make. Because one of the interesting things that sort of developed, I, I, I certainly something Tony Rice played a part in is this this bluegrass guitar sound, which involves a flat third and a flat seventh, whether a song's in a major key or not. Um, right. And it's it's sort of become and I and I sort of been relatively new to bluegrass. Listen to a lot of bluegrass, and I you know I love hearing people. I love Tony Rice. I love people play fast. I love people play bluesy. I love that kind of hard driving sound. Is anyone I really started listening to somebody like Norman Blake? But I I sort of thought, well, hang on, some of these tunes are in so clearly in a major key throughout. Um, and and it's and, it, and my point is not that I, I don't like the flat third flat seven thing, but it's really interesting to hear people who solo without using that when it's appropriate, because you just hear a completely different thing come out that I, I sort of is is a different approach that I like. Definitely, yeah. I think that, yeah. I mean, I'm for me the Tony records with Norman, the the Tony the the duo record with John Carlini, all of his his uh, with the bluegrass album band i mean with tony it i mean he has such a strong sense of language that's so singularly him that um that school of thought then kind of gets reified and it lo- and then itself kind of loses its provenance shall we say or where it comes from hmm. um and you know, I think that it's totally, it's, I mean, it's, it's just a, to me, it's almost, I mean, to someone who's maybe not so nerdy about this kind of stuff could just see different flavors of the same thing. To me, I see it as um, apples and oranges in terms of approach. I mean, being younger and hearing those Blake and Rice albums, I thought it was a fun game to just distinguish who's who just Mm. for, to build my listening skills. But now looking back on it, I almost think it's such a it's such a beautiful thing that those two guys sat down because they're very, very different. Mm. Um, almost like the Skaggs and Rice album, for example, they are quite different, but they're um, they're making contemporary statements. Um, but Norman, I mean, I. We, that's a whole other conversation. He was progressive for different ways, but very traditional throughout, which I think is a, is an interesting case. But um, oh, and with the Tony Rice thing, you know the the sort of the hard driving bluesy stuff is only a part of what Tony Rice did. He, you know he he had a, a whole breadth of jazzier things and you know different right. arrangements of other types of tunes that um, that don't don't go down that route necessarily. But there's a certain element of what he does that people loved and and sort of hung on to and, and sort of took forward. Um, right. Absolutely. And it's, and it's interesting sort of talking about that, about progressive, um, just reading through the book and you, you sort of go, go way back with the history of guitar through sort of bluegrass, pre bluegrass music. And one of the, the players you pick out as, as being incredibly progressive was Riley Puckett. Yes. And, and sort of talk about you almost, I think you equate, his style of playing almost to the sort of role of a tuba with a very definite sort of, you know, emphasizing of beats and a very almost kind of overly solid approach to those bass notes. Um, right. and, and yet maybe not a player that everybody knows about necessarily. Yeah. He, 
Riley Puckett is is interesting um, for a number of reasons. I th- I think is for people who are not aware of him, he had this very very prolific solo career. There's a number of compilations of him singing, um, and just has this incredible, incredibly beautiful, boisterous um, voice. Um, but was this incredible guitar player as well, and and famously played with the the Skillet Lickers from from Georgia. And um, they didn't have a bass in that band. So the role of the bass player um, historically is to kind of occupy, and this is true for, you know, Western swing or a lot of jazz contexts too. And, you know, early jazz occupying um, two beats per measure, whether it be one or three or two and four. Riley pretty consistently played one and three and oftentimes would just play two notes per measure, um, without strums. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, he played with thumb and finger picks who sometimes his strums are quieter than his thumb. And it's kind of a fun challenge to see if he actually is strumming, but it kind of reminds me of like Freddie green in, um, as a, as a backup guitar player in, in jazz, because oftentimes he would use two and three note voicings, um, that move through chords, uh, just outlining, the harmony in a very minimalistic sense. And what I think that what what's empowering about that for guitar players is that if you get used to just playing two half notes, um, meaning two notes that occupy two beats each. And so that means two per every four beat, every measure that has four beats. When you do interject quarter notes, quarter notes start to feel like eighth notes and eighth notes start to feel like 16th notes. Cause you're reshifting everyone's orientation around time because technically you're, pull, you're feeling the tune in halftime, but everyone else is feeling it in common time. So it creates this beautiful polarity um, through the parts. And it almost reminds me of like opera, like early opera or just with all these complex parts um, working in that way. And um yeah, and, and Riley was also very virtuosic in, in a lot of his um, solo stuff. Like if you seek out him playing Buzzy Rag, that's uh, a good example of him playing kind of in a showy fingerstyle kind of way. And it was very, very well-rounded. Um, and and that, yeah, and I think... So no, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, I think that that's kind of a feature of just... Maybe something that isn't true of of a lot of contemporary guitar players won't be um, as aware of different styles within the same tradition. And I wonder whether, um, sort of back at that point, that was also a recording consideration and that capturing sort of any subtlety of bass was probably quite hard. Um, so right. not, not having a bass player as a recording band at that point in history was probably not a bad thing but it probably also right. required him to play slightly more stridently on the bass notes to, to fill that role because just the way music was captured was, you know, I, I, it, there were certain situations, I think, back at that point, they would often use a tuba instead of a string bass because it stood a better chance of coming out on the right. actual recording. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, it was in that way a, a pretty industrial decision. Um, yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, his, 
another point, another reason for kind of bringing him into the conversation, I think, uh, which is important, is is he's pretty maximalistic in a lot of ways. And in that way, he kind of fits the archetype of almost like a proto flat picker. Um, because I, I find that um, there's a good amount of people in the old time world who don't care to play with that many notes. So um, I think he's an interesting case study to kind of show what was or what was happening in old time music before kind of like the, you know, quote unquote, flat picker hit the scene. Yeah. And then sort of following on from that, the, this, this sort of the next player you really sort of pick out and talk about is Mabel Carter. Um, and again, it's interesting. One of the points you make is that both played in relatively small ensembles. So they were able to play slightly differently or, ne- or maybe required to play slightly differently. Right. Um, and again, you talk about the sort of history of, of, of flat picking. Um, and we're talking about people who didn't use a flat pick necessarily. Um, and, and Lester Flat, you know, is a, you know, a big linchpin in people's versions of how bluegrass rhythm playing developed. And yet, so it's like you talk about flat picking. It's almost like a state of mind rather than a definable thing. That's really well said. Yeah, I, I, I really like that idea. I, I certainly do. I think I think it's, yeah, it is very much a state of mind. And, um, and I think that being able to encompass or to realize that bluegrass music, early country blues, as it were, folk, um, banjo music, dulcimer music, this is all in the same vein. You know, hmm. whether you learn a John Fahey piece or you learn, um, you know, or you investigate his sources and you, and you, uh, you see that he, you know, he's really synthesizing a lot of Elizabeth Cotton or you transcribe a blind Blake piece, um, or you transcribe or you, you put vocal old ballads and vocal melodies in a flat pick style or in a finger pick style. I think it's important for flat pickers to be aware of this and players, um, like David Bromberg um, is someone who kind of straddled those, those two worlds and, and in a similar way to Norman. Um, and I think that that speaks to your point about a state of mind, just seeing all of this as a continuation, what would it be like if we played some finger style piece and open tuning in a flat pick style, maybe not in an open tuning in a different key or something like that. What would, what would happen? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you, you know, talk about the influence of Mobile Carter on Norman Blake, which is something that, um, so I hadn't considered until fairly really, I think maybe talking to Bob Minner, he sort of pointed out, and yeah, I read it again in your book. Um, and it's, in, it's, it's interesting that, that you call, you don't call the book a bluegrass guitar method or an old time guitar method. It's the title, the subtitle is a method for rural guitarists. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of I wondered where that particular word came from. It's quite a careful choice, I presume. Yeah, I think I wanted something. I think what I was coming up against is um, the kind of, how I'll say, maybe the codified old-time world and the codified bluegrass world on the surface are kind of opposed politically 
instrumental politics, right? In terms of what each instrument does, what is too much, what is too little, what is too folky, what is too showy. What I think they both can be susceptible to is an avoidance of acknowledging that this music is not bluegrass or old time. It's American traditional music that got stylized by a series of forces and represent different paths. I mean, there's sub paths within each camp. They bleed over. Um, But I wanted a term that was more reflective um, that uh, I shouldn't say more reflective. I should, that w- was a, a bit more evocative to perhaps inspire some, um, reflection on, you know, what is this music? Where does it come from? And is it really all that different or does it have, does it have to be? Um, and that's not to say that I think that there should be some homogenized, uh, type of, more of a global approach to traditional music, but just being aware of, you know, what contributes to making something sound the way that it does and what is similar. And I, you know, without trying to paint a picture in a too heavy, uh, with a kind of heavy handed approach, I really do think that there are more similarities than differences in, in the music. Yeah. And it's interesting that sort of sense of source material and different directions. It's like, you sort of take it out of the context of bluegrass entirely. It's perfectly possible for like a kid in their twenties to have heard Red Hot Chili Peppers' version of Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder, and right. never have heard Stevie Wonder's version, and that's okay, and that's fine. And right. and but it's always interesting to go back and see where the artists you love got their stuff, what their sources are, because there's always gold to be found. And then you add right. to that the fact that we're talking about a sort of a traditional music, which beautiful though Stevie Wonder's music is, it is not traditional music. And there becomes right. a, it becomes an element of, um, I think you used the word stewardship before and that just that element of, and it, it, I had a really interesting conversation with Tristan Scroggins on the podcast about this and about the sense of what is authentic versus what is progressive and how to be progressive. You need to know where you're progressing from to be mm-hmm. progressive. And, and it's just, I find it a fascinating, this whole idea of authenticity and, there's something I found very powerful about your book about just this idea of going back because it's not, it's not a regression. It's not, let's go back here because it was better. It's just, let's go back and look where this came from because you will learn something interesting. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think that to your point about someone knowing a red hot chili peppers version and then going back and seeing the source, I think that they're thinking about it. There's almost, I, I, there is an advantage to have to being in the dark for a long time about that and then investigating it. Once you really mm-hmm. get inside of maybe that person who heard the red hot chili peppers version really learned it, maybe note for note or just learned all the lyrics or, you know, memorize where all the guitar parts were or something. And that actually articulating the word guitar parts makes me, think of an interesting or to me an interesting point and an important point for for what i try to um expound which is that 
in all styles of music, there should be no such thing as a guitar part. You know, all things are negotiable and they could be played by all instruments. Um, and I think in investigating that, um, personally, I like to learn tunes before I learn a guitar, uh, a, a tune on the guitar. I like to put it on the mandolin, then the banjo and then the guitar, because it makes you think of it in different ways. If you learn a fiddle melody on the mandolin, same tuning, um, you can put it in gross tuning if you need to. And then putting it on the banjo forces you to think of it in a much more um, uh, kind of heroic way. Because you know, if you're trying to play melodically, you have to think of passages almost upside down and contained within roles. And when you put it back in the guitar, on the guitar, it kind of is in between those two worlds. So I think that there's a lot of knowledge to be gained through seeing things in um in motion or in flux i should say and um and i think that's really what what uh can contribute to to uh both to progressivism and um being authentic yeah i think i think in in lots of music going back to a previous point can often be the thing that is a springboard to take things forward you know i think if you it's just there's just so much interesting source material, whatever form of music you like, and it's right. like, just hearing you talk about sort of different things been taken different directions, and it's just it's, I've been listening to various fiddle tunes, bluegrass, old times, Marish things this week, and I was watching one of the homespun Norman Blake videos you mentioned earlier, and he plays a tune called New Century Hornpipe, and I learned yeah. it on guitar. And was playing, and you, it sort of makes you realise it, it almost felt like playing a, class, a classical piece. It's got that sort of courtly shape to it, and it felt like quite a formal dance. And it, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, well, it's all of these fiddle tunes are called a jig or a reel or a polka or a horn. They're all forms of dance. They're all named after, and yet, and yet we often fiddle tunes, like I say with air quotes that nobody's going to see because this is a podcast. But we call them fiddle tunes, where what we just mean is tunes, because we're not playing them like a fiddle tune. I, I will often play a fiddle tune on guitar in a way that, or it might be a tune that's written on the mandolin. It was not even a fiddle tune to start with, but we just call everything a fiddle tune. And it, I, it sort of, it sounds naive and a bit ridiculous, but I've forgotten that the word fiddle in the phrase fiddle tune means something. That's, that's really, that's a great point. I, I think it does. I, I think that the fiddle, the idea of the, it being a fiddle tune is, I feel like the central point, at least for me, is that it facilitates dance, um, as I was saying earlier. And if you think about classical composers, um, one of my favorite classical composers is um, Franz Caseus, who is a Haitian-born guitar player who, who wished to establish a repertoire um, that spun together Haitian folk music into, uh, you know, classical performance pieces in a similar way to Bartok, who was a big influence on him. And, you know, uh, looking at certain classical pieces, which I'm no, by no means an expert, you see these things, little titles like a courante, little little dances, little tunes 
built up of eight measure phrases that are repeated twice. There's, you know, an A part, B part often. Those sorts of things, it's, I almost see it in a similar, when I mentioned Robert Schumann earlier and the idea of like art song, um, I almost see that putting a Carante within a classical piece or in a sonata form, almost like a bluegrass statement because there's a sense of um, empathy for people of the time who may have known that song, maybe colloquially, locally, and they hear it in this kind of grandiose setting. There's, um, there's kind of a shared cultural moment in that. But I think with, and going back to the term rural, with like the idea of the term rural becoming increasingly, I don't want to say irrelevant, but with the world being more globalized, that sense is lost. Um, and I think like Norman, I mean, he grew up in North Georgia and around the Sand Mountain area and playing with local musicians and really felt the the significance of that for those communities. And those communities, thankfully, those traditions are still being passed on. But um, I think it's very easy to forget that. I, I think it's very, very easy. But, um, and that goes back to the point about, say, Tony Rice putting in this very progressive, you know, five-string banjo, mandolin, chop on two and four. It's it's such a beautiful thing to see that develop from, you know, uh, a mod, I, I would say a modest fiddle tune, which can be rendered classically, like you're saying, or um, in a driving way in a bluegrass, bluegrass drive, old time drive being two totally different things. So, um, but I'm curious too, if you had come to any conclusions about what you think maybe the term fiddle tune would signify versus just a tune. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, and I said to somebody recently, I'd, I'd written a tune. I said, I've written a fiddle tune. And he said, Oh, did you write it on the fiddle? And I said, no, I wrote it on the guitar. He said, Oh, isn't it a guitar tune then? And and just that that sense of we we sort of use fiddle tune as a catch-all for um, a certain type of melody, and and I'm sure this is they're used differently in different cult, like cultural contexts. So the way that Irish musicians might talk about fiddle tune, or a Shetland fiddler might talk about a fiddle tune versus something else, is probably different to the way bluegrass is, is sort of taken that phrase. But it's just that, and it made me think about all sorts of things. But like one strand of it is. Just talking about that, and then in the book you sort of mentioned that the, this, the the way a bow works is very different to the way a flat pick works, and so you naturally have like a longer arc for the bow, and there's more variation within that. But also, just fiddlers tend to play with some, however straight they're playing, some sense of shuffle in there, and, right. and often fast, straight sort of sixteenth note or eighth note bluegrass flat picking can be quite metronomic um right you know it is it's possible to go down that route with it and i i, I find it in, just on a personal level really interesting because i nearly always play something like whiskey before breakfast or saint anne's real or cherokee i find it very hard to play tunes totally straight i always play right. with a bit of a bounce and sometimes yes. play with banjo players who want to play everything very straight because it's it's sort of more natural in a way to with three finger banjo to to play it totally straight than it is and I, I just find it interesting as the person and part of it is something that i sort of thought made me um a bit crap at bluegrass guitar because i i tended to swing everything 
but it's just mm-hmm. uh, it's my natural style. And when I started having lessons with Brian, certain artist works, and I was expecting him to teach me, you know, flashy licks and clever things. And he sort of basically said, first thing is to make a nice noise. Don't forget to make a nice noise because so many people get caught up in what they're playing. They forget how to play and right. how they sound. And then he said, think about whether somebody's going to want to tap their foot to it. Like, does what you're playing have enough of a phrase or a groove or something about it? So even if the music isn't, and this, oh, this isn't what he said, but I'm sort of adding to the, the point that he made really, is that even if I'm not playing music that's designed for people to dance to, and lots of bluegrass musicians aren't, it should still make you want to tap your foot and feel involved with it. It should draw you in right. rather than being presented for you to sit and watch. It should physically kind of move you in some way, I think. And so many of the players oh, that right. I love... Um, whether it be Doc Watson or um, Russ Barenberg, I love, and he's just got everything he does has groove. Listen to Bruce Molsky play whatever instrument he's playing, and there's just groove, and there's there's something. Yep. And so many of the musicians I love have that in some form, um, which I'm Absolutely. not even sure if that answers your question, but that's that's sort of where it takes. No, me. it definitely does. I I like the point of of considering a more holistic approach that it's it's not just the the mel. I mean. If you go to a book and you you look at a melody on a page, that doesn't really tell you anything. I mean, it tells you where the notes are, which they themselves can be negotiated with and moved around and and most often are to make creative statements. But there's everything. I mean, there's the vertical component of harmony. How do you harmonize it? How do you how do you articulate like you're saying? Do you want shuffle? Do you want a bounce? You know, do you want more of a, a bouncy feel um someone like russ barenberg you know is a very in in terms of, i don't know if i would really consider him a bluegrass guitar player but say if we put him in there because he flat picks right he is very minimalistic and everything about his tone his touch is entirely musical someone like brian as well um where yeah the the decisions around a tune beside the melody itself contribute just as much to it being, you know, to the performance and it being one thing or the other. Mm. And I find it really interesting just sort of you talking about art music and, and just really, I think it's one of the things that I, I found just reading the book is, is how much the aim is to celebrate all of these things, not to sort of point out something is right or wrong, or actually take these two things that can seem quite in, quite distinct and show that they are two sides of the same thing. But using the phrase art music and realize I, I adore Punch Brothers. Um, but what they do is much more arranged than it's much more like chamber music. Um, and they would describe it, you know, mm-hmm. I've interviewed Chris Eldridge, he describes it in this way. And um, right. it's a much more arranged thing. And it takes the bluegrass instrumentation and a fair bit of the, the sensibility and the stylistic context but creates a very different thing with it. Um, and that, that is also equally joyous and exciting to me as hearing somebody play, I don't know, um, shove the pig's foot a little further into the fire with a really cool groove, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, um, with, with a band like the punch brothers, you know, there's so many different ways you could, arrange this music in a chamber ensemble like you could you could do it as you said in in a very arranged way with alternative um time signatures key changes um 
compositional tools that they employ, or you could take it in a different direction entirely and do kind of what Norman and Nancy Blake did with James Bryan and incorporate cello. And, um, you know, and that was highly improvised music that was not mm. necessarily structured, but timbrely was, was in the pocket of, of, of chamber music, but yet still reflects um, swaths of, of the same tradition. And, um, and I concur, it's entirely exciting in both contexts. I think that's, I think that's one of the things I love about bluegrass is that essentially there are some rules or a structure or a predetermined start. Like you can turn up anywhere in the world with half a dozen tunes, you know, that everybody else does. And yep. the instruments are largely defined. Each has a relatively defined role. Some more so than others. The role of a mandolin is different from the role of a guitar, which covers more. And I think you talk about that a little bit about when we hear a, um, or we hear a bluegrass band like the certain the bass gets certain beats the mandolin then it, it it almost like the bluegrass band functions like a drum kit essentially right. and each um, and so if you turn up at a bluegrass band you sort of know what your instrument's expected to do you know what the tune's probably going to be you know probably how most people are going to harmonise it and right. there's also a convention about how the harmony parts are sung and so you can turn up and there's so many decisions that are pre-made you can make music instantly. But then there's also Definitely. all of these other options to take it in any other direction you want, as much as right. or little as you'd like to. Right, which which then makes those things on some level uh political. And and I mean that in, in a in a in a in a in a good way, because for for me, that was the aspect of this music, both bluegrass and old time and just traditional music in general, that I craved. Um and there's a recent interview with Taj Mahal for the new record that he did with Ry Cooter. And he said, as a younger guy um, in California, he didn't, he, he wanted a tradition that he could lay back on like a river, like he could lay on his back and float down to the center of this river to find purpose and meaning in that way. And I think that is in a lot of ways, kind of quasi-religious about this music, um, almost in the same way that maybe a rock band that builds themselves off of you know the the, the model of like Iggy Pop or or any of these, uh, really any configuration musically, but specifically with this music, what I think is beautiful is that there's a sense of etiquette that and and respect and um and as you said rules too rules in terms of belonging rules in terms of how do i that I mean there's a whole i mean there's a whole uh there's so many so many mores that you kind of have to avail yourself to and of it's like how do i introduce myself to people how do i ask that i can play like am i good enough to play in this circle and how do I be reverent without being too reverent and these sorts of things? And, um, it's very nuanced. And, um, and I think it's, uh, I try to take myself out of it though, um, as much as possible to just, to just enjoy the music. Um, but, but to play this music, going back to stewardship, you have to put on so many different layers to be able to take them off really. Yeah. It's a really interesting, a really interesting sort of analogy for it is, there is, they are, it is almost like, um, 
clothing you can choose to wear or not. It doesn't have to be a welded on bit of who you are. You can choose to express yourself one way and differently the next day. And it's all precisely. Valid. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I, 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 there's a great quote by, um, uh, either John Steinbeck or his son, where he says within the American tradition of writing a novel or not, it doesn't necessarily have to be American, but he was speaking for his own tradition that a house has been described so many times. A cityscape has been described so many times. You can just infer it. And I think that that's a really exciting thing about understanding traditional uh, um, traditionalism or just where these sources come from and just being in the just being in the contemporary moment makes the music contemporary inherently. But you can just you don't have to be so heavy handed. You can be subtle in terms of how you and uh, you know invoke certain things. Yeah, and I, I sort of became a bit because I don't have a long tradition of listening to or playing bluegrass or growing up around it or, or any of that. So I, I sort of consume multiple generations of it in one go all at the same time. So it has no historical context. But I interviewed. Yeah. Um, Happy Tram from Homespun fairly recently and just sort of going back through their catalogue and realising just how like the way the music has, is played, the way the music is taught, the way the music is talked about, like has all changed just in my lifetime, you know, in the past 50 years that all of those things have subtly shifted a bit since we get further away from some periods of bluegrass further towards others, different people take up the mantle and run with it. And there's, there's, there's all sorts of sort of layers and layers and layers in there. And then um, I think there, there's a phrase, um, there's a phrase from the book that I really liked, which was around the idea that, that each guitarist, I think, correct me if it's wrong. I think it's each guitar player should have their own tastes. However, they all guitar players should be equally adaptable to another's taste or something like that. And the idea that it's all there, who you are as your, your individual musician, which is your job as a musician to find out who that is and be you, not be somebody else, mm -hmm. but, but also be able to relate that back to lots of different contexts is a really sort of powerful and grounding idea. Thank you. Yeah. I think that, um, Western, Western classical music is, is interesting. It's, it's, it's very, um, I can't remember exactly which book I was reading. I think it's, um, it's, it's an, uh, ethnomusicology, uh, a, a text about, um, it's, it's by, I think Michael Chernoff and he talks about, um, communities in, um, I believe East Africa, that he was studying and talking about the idea that these performances were gay. The success of a performance was gauged by its ability to facilitate social cohesion. And I think Western classical music and subsequent forms of classical or of Western music in general kind of rewards. I hate to say it's so, uh, so, so in such a rash way, but kind of like sitting down and shutting up, like, you know, applauding in between songs and these sorts of things. And, and I think about the, the archetype of like the American singer songwriter, that it's this like prophetic statement of here's, here's my take on reality. And, you know, hopefully it relates, but you know, you're going to 
sit and listen to it, which I think is a, a wonderful thing. Um, and something that I'm very compelled to play in context wise as a side man. But in terms of stewardship, going back to stewardship and just having ownership of this music in general, that is really not the ethic of where folk music comes from. And I think that that's kind of there. I mean, there are a lot of historical happenings that lended to this kind of funhouse effect of like losing sight of that. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of songwriters being known for playing, okay, well, that was the era of them working with this guitar player, which is, you know, which they, they begin to take on personalities of themselves within that context. But at least for my practice, I want to be as much as a chameleon or as transparent as possible. Um, more as a statement about, uh, respect. And I think that any creative decision that you make from that launching point, um, is more, at least for me, a, a more eternal and that, and not necessarily that I have to justify it, but that I, that I can kind of rest easy knowing where that choice came from. Um, with, you know, and in this context, when I say it came from, I mean, basically synthesizing and, uh, sources that I've, you know, studied or learned from. And that, that sort of feels like a, a sort of nice place to sort of start wrapping it up. So, but it's that, it's an idea that is, is, is sort of, the more I talk to people about these things and, you know, talk to plenty of people on the podcast who think deeply about this stuff as you do. And just that sense from so many people of your job is to absorb things and process things and then sort of somehow learn to get out of the way to let them out in their own form. It's just, you know, take on all these musical influences and all these different, because your range, your, your range of influences are unique to you. And then to let that all go into you and bubble away and infuse and then get out of the way of, it, of yourself as much as you can to let that come out in its purest form of expression. Um, right. And it's just, I said, it's a lovely, you know, a lovely idea that we can all, learn to play like other guitarists or mandolinists or fiddlers. And that's a valuable thing to do, but we are also utterly unique musical individuals. Right. Right. No. And I think investigating these things in flux is really the way to do it. I I'm aware of the fact that making a guitar book with transcriptions, it, it's, I, I almost think like making guitar a guitar book is the simultaneously the least optimal way of making that statement, but also the only way of, of truly make, of, of truly having a document that, that speaks toward a, a, a truth or something like that. Mm. Um, but I agree. I think that that's the beautiful thing about this music because at, at a certain point, you know, just like learning music in general, keys become less and less relevant because it's just music and, and same with same thing with um, influence and sources. Of course they can be clearly tracked, but when those edges start to kind of melt away, um, you almost forget where you originally heard it. And, and I think that's where the kind of the beginning of a creative statement kind of starts to happen. Mm. And it's like, it's like having a conversation, you read stuff and talk to people and try out opinions and 
eventually you end up having conversations with people and saying things that you think that come out. Right. Like just, you know, I tonight over an hour chat to you, I would have said two or three things that hadn't occurred to me before we had this conversation because it's prompted that. And, and I love that. And, you know, I, I'm, most of us are able to do that linguistically, but to get to the point where you can do that musically is, is the goal. Yeah. Very well said. I, I, and I too, this, yeah, this conversation is, has been really inspiring and, you know, and I, and I think about it too, like with just, you know, kind of as a concluding thought, uh, it's when I sat down to do the book, I really just wanted to have a treatise about flat picking fiddle tunes and the irony that I found in that. And that was maybe 10 pages. And then there were questions that I needed to ask. And then that became 20 pages and so on and so forth. And then once I had answered all those questions, I realized, oh, well, I need to answer them more thoroughly by means of transcription to kind of reference history. Um, and so in that way, I had no, I really didn't really know what the book would become until I just investigated what those questions gave me and then organized it from there. And, um, and that was, that was a good practice in that way because, uh, it was just a reminder that one foot in front of the other, um, is a, is a truly, you know, at least for my practice, that's, that's how, that's where things kind of come from. You can only use what you have. You can't, you can, you can put them in conversation with one another, but it's only within, you know, doing that and reflecting on that. Do you come to, to new conclusions? And I think that's a part of the sort of what I love about this podcast. Cause I, I could have easily sat myself down at the beginning and gone like, you don't know enough about this stuff to interview people and talk to people. And like part of it was just that I'm interested. So I wanted to ask people questions and you ask people questions and new questions emerge and threads emerge that you pull on and somebody goes, go and talk to this person. And then that person goes, well, go and talk to this person. And then you go off down a different, and it's, it's that constant, um, there's always another question, isn't there? That's really well said. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, honestly, I mean, yeah, the, this, this format just of inquiry and just opening up the conversation to ambiguity um, is, is beautiful because in and of itself, that's a, you know, it, it becomes inherently creative. Yeah, I love sitting down for these conversations because I don't really know where they're going to go. Like, I have some thoughts and some questions, and we might be talking about a specific project. But um, there's always everybody I talk to has some level of depth they've thought about an aspect of music in that I, you know, just follow. And I'm as fascinated as hopefully the people listening to this are when it comes out. But yeah, it's it's been a delight chatting to you tonight, Cameron. Likewise, thank you so much, and and just. Thank you in general for, for doing the podcast. It's really great. I have such a good time doing it. You can't imagine. <laughs> um, I'll send, I'll send people to your website for more information about, about what's going on. Um, if there's anything else like you, anywhere else you'd like me to send people, let me know. Um, is that, is that probably the main source of. Yeah, that's the main source. It's kind of the hub, um, between YouTube and Instagram. Um, so just, there's a little, little social links and little bubbles at the top between um, I'm active on both Instagram and YouTube more so YouTube now with kind of archival stuff, uh, just doing transcriptions and, and making these tunes available to people. Um, and yeah, just on the website, there's a, 
store section with various ebooks and core, little video courses um, that teach, you know, a Carter family, a group of Carter family songs. And then there's also um, a link to like a Google doc with a la carte lessons. If people want to have kind of a less, a smaller commitment, but with like a fully fledged transcriptions uh, and um, basically private Dropbox folders with PDFs, slowed down videos, performance videos, that sort of thing. Cool. Well, I'll link to all of that then and we can, uh, we can get people in touch. Um, Great. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.